This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. Should be a very interesting discussion with uh, Kristen Wilson. Kristen is chair of the anthropology department at Cabrillo College in uh, California. She's the author of um, a couple of interesting publications. One is entitled Others Milk, The Potential of Exceptional Breastfeeding. Now, just saying that title proudly got reaction from a lot of the folks listening to us. We'll talk about some of that as well. Uh, previously, she's the author of Not Trying, Infertility, Childlessness, and Ambivalence. And previously, she had taught in the sociology department of uh, Georgia State University. She worked as an ethnographer at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta. It's nice to have you uh, join us on our program. Good morning. Uh, Good morning, Bob. That title, Others Milk, the Potential of Exceptional Breastfeeding, I would imagine any time you pose that title to someone, you get, um, I would imagine, probably a very distinct reaction. Mostly people uh, ask me what I mean by (laughs) exceptional breastfeeding. I figured, yes. Yeah. um, You know, sometimes people think they know what I'm talking about, um, and uh, we get to have a conversation about it because, honestly, I find out that a lot of people have stories about breastfeeding, um, not just, you know, mothers of small children seems like everybody has a story about it. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> and when, you know, uh, let's take, a, I want to get into this term exceptional breastfeeding in mm-hmm. in a moment, but let me just take the term breastfeeding because you say that term and in most cases you will get an immediate reaction depending on who, the, who you're talking to. Um, and those reactions can vary as you know. Uh, yes. When I say the term breastfeeding to you, what do you how do you define it? Well, in a way, I found from doing this work that it doesn't really matter how I define it because folks define it in many different ways. 
So some people consider nursing a child at the breast or at the chest to be breastfeeding, even if there is no milk or even if they're providing formula in a bag around the neck that has a tube leading to the nipple. And then other people describe themselves as breastfeeding if they give their children breast milk, either pumped from the parent's body or donated by other lactating individuals. And all of these things kind of seem like exceptional breastfeeding, but to the people who do it, it is breastfeeding. And that term, exceptional breastfeeding, since we've mentioned this a couple of different times, how do you distinguish breastfeeding from exceptional breastfeeding? Yeah, um, I mean, in a way, a lot more breastfeeding is exceptional than I even really thought when I embarked on this research because I initially was thinking of people who induced lactation, who did not have a pregnancy and induced lactation and how their breastfeeding experience might be quite different than that of others. And when I sent out a call for participants for this research, I got an enormous response. I just received hundreds of emails of folks telling me, hey, you ought to talk to me because what I'm doing is really unusual. And so I began to expand my idea of what is exceptional to the point that it's not even <laughs> exceptional. It's actually not all that uncommon. So some of the things that became part of this study were folks who are nursing their children um, much uh, further past toddlerhood, uh, people who are tandem nursing, so nursing more than one child at a time, folks who are co-nursing, so that means that there are nursing, uh, multiple adults are, are nursing the same child. Um, people are uh, sharing the nursing duties, uh, maybe with a friend, perhaps with the partner in their household. Um, there are a lot of other ways of doing it. And even people who are exclusively pumping because they cannot bear to have a child at their breast for some reason or another. For example, they may have had um, sexual trauma and they, and they don't feel comfortable with breastfeeding, but they still want to give their child breast milk. Mm. And then you have situations like um, gay fathers um, who, you know, they want to bond with their babies, uh, too. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I talked to some who um, uh, acquired breast milk um, from friends, mm -hmm. some who acquired breast milk from the surrogate who gave birth to their child. Um, I talked to uh, uh, gay men who were a couple whose surrogate provided breast milk to them for an entire year after the baby was born. And uh, I understand that this is sometimes part of a surrogacy contract. In this case, it wasn't. In this case, it was someone who just really wanted to help those parents give their child uh, what they really felt like was the best that they could, so the best nutrition. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times people talk about breast Feeding is not just about the nutrition, but about the bonding. And so ways of approximating that kind of bonding by holding a child skin to skin, by providing the bottle, you know, while keeping them close and looking into their eyes, um, people are kind of taking their cues from breastfeeding. And then you have the situation where 
the baby boomers were raised for the most part on formula. Mm-hmm. Um, before them, there were generations where breastfeeding was common. Okay, so breastfeeding has kind of come back. And as you were just saying, in a way, the whole idea is, you know, for uh, some parents these days, it's almost the value of how much they're caring for the infant in terms of, you know, how much they actually care is based on whether or not they're breastfeeding. Yeah. You know, I I have some qualms about that. The idea that you are not an upstanding person if you don't breastfeed is really problematic. Um, There are a number of public health campaigns to convince people to breastfeed, that this is the right thing to do, that it's the best nutrition, and that you're really putting your child's well-being at risk if you don't do it. Well, I think from talking to a lot of folks that people really are already convinced that breastfeeding is the way to go. Uh, well over 80% of, of people with infants attempt to do so. But then when the child is six months, the persistence drops off. And it's not because people don't want to breastfeed. It's because we don't actually provide the supports that we uh, that people actually need to be able to reach their breastfeeding goals. So it's not individual people's parents' shortcomings that are at fault. It's the fact that they have to go to work, that they might not be able to uh, pump at work in a comfortable way. Coworkers might resent those breaks. It may be really hard if they don't have any paid leave um, or a, a supportive situation at home where there's somebody helping them with the, ha- the uh, child care of the other kids, with taking care of the household, um, and paying the bills and so on. So there's, breastfeeding is a big commitment. It takes time. It's quite a lot of labor involved. And if we don't provide sufficient support, people can't do it even if they want to. So even those with the very greatest barriers, those who are living in poverty, very young parents, black women, they have the, the greatest barriers to breastfeed. They're still doing so in ever-increasing numbers. And when we talk about barriers to breastfeeding, breastfeeding in public, there used to be barriers in a lot of spots. Um, but Basically, breastfeeding in public, as I understand, is pretty much legal across the country. Yeah. Um, you know, my book came out in August, and uh, very soon after that, it became legal in every state. Um, there was one holdout, I think it was Idaho, um, and it, now in every state in the United States, it's, it's legal to breastfeed anywhere that the mother is allowed to be or anywhere that the breastfeeder is allowed to be, they are allowed to be breastfeeding. But that doesn't keep people from making remarks. That doesn't keep people from um, asking somebody not to breastfeed or asking them to cover up or um, just making the breastfeeder feel generally uncomfortable. So, you know, the, the baggage from the days when it was supposed to be done always in private is still there. Mm. Yeah. So, so you've still got this situation where some people will, you know, say you're exposing yourself in, mm-hmm. in, in some fashion or contend, something like that? 
Yeah, yeah, that that still happens a lot. Um, I think a lot of people um, I, I've noticed on social media, those who are breastfeeding, uh, frequently relate stories of being harassed in public about breastfeeding. And, you know, while the wider society is fairly supportive of it, um, the reality in people's lives is it doesn't always feel supportive, Mm. you know, in society. We want people to do it, but we don't really necessarily uh, set them up for success. What could we do, what can we do as a society to make this a more, for lack of a better term, uh, comfortable experience for the mother? Hmm. Um, the people that I talk to, um, many of them uh, find themselves a little bit on the margins of of um, what is considered typical or normal for breastfeeders. And so for them, they have an even more uh, difficult time in feeling comfortable breastfeeding. So for example, when I'm talking about people who are breastfeeding a child who's five or six, um, it's a lot harder for them to feel accommodated than just the general breastfeeding population. Um, uh, also, people who are uh, more uh, masculine identified. So I talked to a number of people who identified as butch lesbians or transgender who are breastfeeding. And so for them, it's even more difficult to feel comfortable um, being open about the breastfeeding. People are embarrassed sometimes if they're exclusively pumping even. So my research is really on the folks that are a, a little bit outside the mainstream, but even those folks who are in the mainstream talk about not being able to um, have real time at work to pump. So for example, even though employers are to give you space and time to do so, if you are a teacher, if you are a nurse, if you are a service worker, it is very difficult on the ground to find time to breastfeed or to find time to do that pumping. I talked to a number of law enforcement officers who were breastfeeding their children and how impossible it really is to be able to uh, pump for some of them um, and continue on with breastfeeding and still be out on calls and driving patrol cars and so forth. Some of them feel like um, their jobs are curtailed, their careers are curtailed because of their need to pump or or uh, breastfeed their children. So even for the more mainstream, it's really difficult. Mm. What was the experience that you went through when you adopted your son? Yeah, so I adopted two boys, Mm -hmm. and the first one, um, I uh, was kind of on a waiting list, and suddenly I I, uh, got this uh, call, and I went to get him from the hospital, brought him home, and the emotional excitement, um, the thrill of having this new child who I very much wanted um, had a physiological effect on my body in that I just started lactating, um, spontaneously lactating. I didn't do anything to bring it about. I just met my new baby. And I didn't really know what to do with that, but um, and I got uh, donor breast milk to provide to him. And then a year later, the uh, birth mother 
surprise, had another baby, and uh, the social workers called, and I went to the hospital to meet him. This is the, the sibling of my first son. And when I got there, I asked to speak to the lactation consultant and explained to her, hey, I lactated spontaneously with the last kid. Is there anything I can do to breastfeed my child? And, and uh, just like a crack team, she um, got everybody together, got me a hospital-grade pump. I used to pump around the clock to bring the milk about. I got a prescription to Domperidone, which is a drug that has a side effect of lactation. It's actually an anti-nausea drug that is very hard to get in the United States for the purposes of lactation these days, but back then it wasn't so hard. And um, I got a lot of support in order to make uh, breastfeeding happen for my son. And so after uh, a few months of pumping and feeding him partly through one of those tubes with the uh, or the uh, bag with the tube leading to the nipple to supplement my supply, um, I had enough milk to feed him without any of those contraptions or anything. So um, he breastfed for 11 months. Mm. A natural question that comes up in a discussion like this also, we have to bring up the issue of privilege and how that factors into, you know, questions like informal milk sharing versus milk banks, gifting pumped milk versus selling it. Um, how does privilege factor into it? Oh, privilege is a really big part of this. I mean, breastfeeding is much easier if you have financial supports. I mean, actually, it's it's not exactly free. You don't have to go to the store to buy formula, but you do need time off work. You do need high-quality nutrition. You need the circumstances in which to pump or leave the nurse when going back to work. And we are really highly stratified in the work world with who has access to that kind of flexibility and who doesn't, as I was mentioning before. And um, that's only the tip of the iceberg um, when it comes to milk sharing. If you um, go, if you have friends who are also um, breastfeeding and they have freezers full of milk, they have extra freezers full of milk, you can network with them and get milk if you don't have enough. But they do um, vet the folks that they give their milk to. And so um, there, this is uh, also coming from research that other ethnographers have done where they have found that people who are um, seeking milk, and I found this as well, people who are seeking milk have to have a really good story. They need to prove that they've worked hard to get that milk, and that's also um, potentially going to be socially stratified. Um, I did encounter um, women who were sharing their milk across class categories, across the political spectrum. People with very different political views were pumping milk for each other. For example, a woman who is incredibly conservative, um, a uh, homeschooling for religious reasons, um, Tea Party member who was pumping her milk for a gay couple um, because, in her mind, 
babies should have breast milk. And so um, I'm seeing uh, maybe not as much stratification in the milk sharing as I fear could happen in the future. Mm. I didn't ask you at the beginning of our discussion, and we're talking with Kristen Wilson and uh, talking with her about this topic of breastfeeding, exceptional breastfeeding. Um, she's talking with us in part as the author of a book entitled Others Milk, The Potential of Exceptional Breastfeeding. Why this book at this point in your life and work? Well, I am a sociologist interested in procreative matters. I'm interested in the experience of um, reproduction, procreation, particularly among people for whom it is not it is not easy. It's not the we don't roll out the red carpet for everyone. Um, there's definitely a stratification of in our society what we characterize as good mothers and bad mothers. You know, ones that we want to be wary of. Those folks that are characterized as having too many children or shouldn't be having children, and those who who should be right. And so I'm really interested in the experiences of the folks who are a bit on the margins there. And so for me, um, when I embarked on uh, providing donor milk for my first son and then breastfeeding my second son, it introduced me to this whole world of other ways of making breastfeeding happen. And so that's really why I got into it. Um, I became curious because of my own experience, and then I I wanted to know, um, you know, what's it like when there are greater barriers to acceptance for, for your parenting in general? What has surprised you? Oh, well... One thing that surprised me in all the ways that breastfeeding can look, so I interviewed uh, friends who brought breast milk to the hospital for new parents to give their babies, um, milk donors and recipients in the law enforcement community who formed this bucket brigade up in New England where they were uh, transporting donated milk from an officer or firefighter from a patrol car to an ambulance to a fire truck and so on to get to the person who needed it. I talked to a volunteer collective of black women in the South who were making sure that milk from one low-income woman who had too much milk got to another who didn't have enough. And I talked to same-sex co co-mothers who split the nursing duties, making breastfeeding around the clock easier on everyone. And so what surprised me from these examples that I gave you is how breastfeeding can go from being an isolating experience into a social experience. It doesn't have to be hidden away, done in your family, but it can be a more communal activity. And the other thing that surprised me is that uh, because the people that I talked to had already suffered the sanctimony of other people in 
making breastfeeding work in ways that weren't necessarily accepted by everyone, that they came out the other side being unwilling to negatively judge other parents. That finding was really overwhelming, that they didn't want other parents to suffer like they had. And so they were organizing in these small ways to affect change, to create that more supportive, more communal space for all sorts of parents. And I was really impressed by that. When you did this book, what were you hoping that those who read it are going to take away from it? I'm hoping that people will uh, be more accepting of different kinds of parenting decisions and that people will be a lot less judgmental like we learn from the exceptional breastfeeders who have these uh, creative and expansive ways of understanding that there are many acceptable and wonderful ways of nourishing and nurturing children. And so I would like people, instead of saying, oh, that kid's too young, or that's gross to tandem nurse, or uh, how could you take someone else's breast milk, you know, how do you know it's, you know, uh, safe to do? Instead, I wish that people's first thought was, how can I support these parents? They're trying their best. Let's believe them and, and trust them and see how we can support them instead of tearing them down. And when we look at, you know, some of the products that have come along, and you've kind of alluded to this a little bit, you know, you have the various pumps, the supplemental nursing systems, things like nipple shields and the like. It really is changing the whole, for lack of a better term, relationship we have with breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, th- some people are really purists about that, and they feel like anything that gets between the baby and the mother is a problem. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that that's just not the reality for everyone. Um, people become parents in all sorts of different ways. Um, different children have different capacities in their abilities to breastfeed, and different parents have differences in their capacities to breastfeed. And so these things like nipple shields and pumps and so on help people achieve their goals. It helps them get the best that they need for their baby. So if you need a nipple shield in order to get breastfeeding going, I think it's great that nipple shields exist so that you don't have to give up on breastfeeding. You can actually use that to kind of bridge the gap if you're having difficulties. Um, And, you know, same thing with the pump. I mean, people have such a love-hate relationship with those pumps. Um, They can just be exhausting. You can feel like a cow, uh, you know, a a dairy cow being attached to a pump. Um, And that doesn't feel the same as holding a warm and snuggly baby. But it, it is really vital and helpful to a lot of people. So I think that we need to, to realize that. And the other thing that comes up is, you know, with an increase in discussion about exceptional breastfeeding, um, is there then the potential or a fear that can be realized about increasing moves to regulate, legislate? Yeah, I, I, 
I do have fears about that because, uh, unfortunately, we have a history of regulations that are about women's bodies in particular um, that are really about um, controlling women and not letting them be in control of their own destiny. And so regulations concern me. Um, I think that they need to be about reducing barriers to um, parents' own individual choices and their options in their bodily autonomy needs to be um, honored. And regulations often don't do that. So one thing that I'm worried about is fears overblown, in my opinion, about milk sharing, uh, fears that that is going to be stopped um, by regulation, and uh, I think it's a slippery slope into turning um, milk sharing into something that's very commodified and commercialized um, so that it's so carefully monitored that it ends up being a product that is, is for sale that can be kind of sanitized and put on a shelf instead of a neighbor saying, hey, I got extra milk, can I give it to your baby? Um, the idea that there will be an intervention that will uh, prevent people from being able to do that, which they have done for time immemorial. I mean, people have always breastfed other folks' babies. So, you know, if you start to regulate sharing milk, where does that end? And a final question for you. There's so many different areas where we could go in this discussion, but one thing I've been thinking about is, in the case of exceptional breastfeeding, when you have a situation where you have, quote-unquote, authorities or officials involved, you know, situations like foster care, hospitals, and the like, mm-hmm. does that create, put, create a quandary for those who are exceptional breastfeeders? Yeah, I think that was a... Um just about universal experience with the folks that I talked to because they part of it was an artifact of they had had to deal with authorities in ways that they were unhappy with and that was a motivator for wanting to tell me their story. And so I got the, an earful of these stories um, where people were um, not accommodated by uh, hospitals, by their pediatrician, um, by their um, uh, maybe their in-laws, their church leaders, and their social workers, and so on, who didn't really want to support what they were up to. So breastfeeding for too long, or breastfeeding a baby that you didn't give birth to, or that sort of thing, or just simply breastfeeding in public, that, that there was a lot of um, stories about people um, having a hard time doing that because of authorities. Um, even just getting the pumping room at work for some people um, was was quite a feat um, that they that they had to fight in order to get that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, 
putting more trust in the parents is the way to go and um, maybe listening more to what they need to do. Um, and also, you know, one thing that um, medical providers in particular who are working with folks that have children who might be wanting to breastfeed them really ought to, and I know many of them have, but just very expansively understand that there are many, many different ways of, of uh, breastfeeding and making that work and not making too many assumptions about it. I know a lot of people told me that um, they could not get their health care providers to believe them that their supply was too low. Um, and that was a source of much frustration for a lot of people. The voice of Kristen Wilson, our guest in this portion of our program. The uh, book is entitled Others Milk, the Potential of Exceptional Breastfeeding. Kristen is chair of the anthropology department at Cabrillo College in California, and she's been kind with her time in talking with us on our program. Thank you very much for joining us on our program. Certainly good luck with this book and with your work. Thank you, Bob. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I've been looking forward to this discussion for some time. I say that an awful lot, but in this case, I really, really, really mean it. Dr. Susanna Stoika is joining us on our program. Uh, she has an interesting uh, gift that she was born with, and it's the ability to really detect irregularities or stresses in the human energy field and to correct them. We'll talk with her about that and um, a number of other interesting areas of uh, discussion, too. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. That kind of ability, being born with that, what was that like? Uh, in the beginning, I didn't know about it. I was uh, seemingly doing my first healing when I was seven years old. Uh, my mom walked into a window and cut her forehead, and it was a lot of bleeding. And uh, because my father would faint if he saw blood, he asked me as a seven-year-old to bandage her, and I remember, still remember needing to go on the wound and closing it. Uh, didn't think too much about it. Uh, years later, when finally I discovered that I was doing healing as an adult, I told my father about it, and he told, oh, you were doing it when you were seven years old. By the time we got to the doctor, the wound was closed, and the doctor told me to go back to whoever did that. And uh, he was very proud to tell the doctor that it was his seven-year-old. So uh, I discovered much later what I was doing, and that was quite a trip to accept it because I, being an engineer as a educational background, you are in a completely different world. Uh, while engineering is very precise and you have proof, healing is more uh, a right brain thing. Uh, you you have to base all your work in your intuition, and you really have to have a good intuition to be able to work with people. Mm. So it is. It was quite a trip to accept my my gift, but I am very 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 uh, grateful for it and for all the stories that uh, I have with people who got better. I am really indeed grateful for it. 
So you've dealt with people who have had some, in some cases, some really chronic illnesses. Yes. Uh, one of the things I did uh, while I was an engineer, I was always also working uh, after hours in a medical practice. And one of the things that I did was to help doctors diagnose which was the main problem when uh, somebody was uh, chronically ill. Because when somebody neglects to take care of an illness, actually it spreads around the system and more and more organs are out of whack. So it's very difficult to diagnose medically what is the most important thing. And I can see it because uh, in the energy field, I can perceive kind of a timestamp and I know what happened first, what happened next, and I can tell doctors what the kind of tests to do to get immediately to the main thing. And when you pull the rug from that main thing, the person gets uh, very fast, much uh, better. So it's a really a nice thing to be able to collaborate with doctors yeah. uh, because they, uh, people need much less uh, tests. We can get immediately to the cause of the problem. And uh, as you know, when somebody is uh, really sick, finding the cause of the problem is very difficult. So I can help doctors with that as well as uh, helping balance the energy field. What's interesting is that we are programmed for healing. Our system is programmed to be healthy. And uh, when we are under stress or uh, we suffer a big shock, uh, this energy field kind of gets tight and can do, cannot function properly. But once a healer comes in and relaxes the field and balances it to work as it's supposed to be, our innate healing system takes over. So the healing healer basically doesn't heal. The healer is an enabler for the energy system to be able to work again properly. One of the things in your background and in your life, you've had the experience of suffering a double concussion. Yes, I did. I uh, fell on ice twice in the same day. I fell backwards from a standing position, nothing on my head, on cement. And the second time I uh, uh, checked out. So it was pretty bad. By the time I had the second uh, injury, I uh, couldn't remember words in any of the languages I speak, and I speak very well three and a few more were not so well and uh, it took me years to recover and I was lucky because by that time I knew a lot about brain injuries because I had a special knack of working with brain injuries which is very interesting so in the end I found myself uh, the way to health by choosing the right uh, professionals by doing what I knew from my experience, I recommend it to others to do. So it was quite a battle. Mm, it certainly sounds like it. Um, we're talking with Dr. Susanna Stoika on our program. Uh, Dr. Stoika is uh, sharing information with us. Uh, interesting discussion. We talked about this idea of you having suffered this uh, double concussion. Um, 
the impact that that had on your everyday life you just touched upon in our discussion, um, what was it that really um, helped you that you looked to be able to use to help others? Because one of the things that came out of that whole situation, as I understand it, was your book. Uh, actually, several books. Uh, one of the books is uh, Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life, in which I put down all my uh, tools that I used to recover both from the brain injury and the other uh, injuries that I suffered at the same time, because you can imagine falling backwards on cement. I had basically my whole system uh, injured. Uh, one of the things that happen with people is that when they have a, a, a brain injury, they are not able to uh, judge what things are really helpful for them and what not. And they are sent from one practitioner to the other, and most of them are not useful. So the uh, Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life uh, basically shows people what can they do to be prepared to help doctors to do a better diagnosis, what to do immediately after brain injury to limit the effects of brain injury, which basically means brain swelling, which does most of the damage, and then how to improve cognitive abilities at any age. And one of the things that I used to recover my cognitive abilities was cooking, which is very interesting. I wouldn't have expected it, but my family wanted me to cook again because I liked my cooking, yet it was much healthier than going out to restaurants. So slowly, slowly, I started cooking, and I found that Cooking, because I had to go and uh, buy stuff, which made me having to recognize the different things I needed to buy. Then I had to cook them and find a way to cook without having a problem when somebody interrupted me. And then uh, having the healthy food, which is very important for brain recovery. All of these together really helped me in my recovery process. So... Uh, having this uh, extremely good experience, I decided to write a series of therapeutic cookbooks, which are increasingly more difficult and are written in a way in a, uh, that the people with brain injury can really use them. And these books are very well received. People really like them. Uh, I had feedback from therapy places, brain therapy places, oh, finally, we needed such a book. So, in fact, I have six books uh, for brain injury. Wow. It's very impressive. Dr. Susanna Stoika is talking with us on our program. One of the thoughts that I had um, in having this discussion today is also to talk about this test that is available to detect concussion in a way that's said to be better than standard imaging? How does that work? Oh, the, uh, the blood test? Yes. Oh, that's a very interesting thing. Um, they uh, found that there are certain uh, proteins that come uh, are changed when you have a brain injury. And they tested all enzymes. 
and they tested all sorts of enzymes. Uh, it's similar with the test for uh, heart attack. So they were looking of, of a, uh, and they based the test on the knowledge of the heart attack test. And they found that certain enzymes are, are changed, are much higher, even if the, a person has a different injury, the brain injury, in the case of brain injury, is much higher. And they are, they want to use this test to basically sort out the people who really had a brain injury and people who really didn't have a concussion. They fell, but they didn't have a concussion. And they are having pretty good results. The correlation with MRIs and CT scans is pretty impressive. Hmm. That is very interesting. And, I mean, is this something that's um, unique and unique to this country, or is this something that's being used in other parts of the world? Oh, it's used in other parts of the world, too. The people are very excited about it, and they are uh, working on uh, a reliable blood test. You know, you think of the impact that this could have on something like traumatic brain injury, which we've touched upon on this show before. I mean... This could be huge. This could be huge because they could test immediately people. What happens uh, when you have a brain injury? Some of them go undetected. And they can go undetected for years. And people don't know about it. They, they are impaired. They find ways around their brain injury. But if these people are uh, under stress for a long time, or they have a shock in their lives, these brain injuries can pop up. And I have seen as a healer, I can detect past brain injuries, but mainstream medicine cannot connect a problem which a person has today with a past brain injury. So being able to detect the brain injury right away, even if it doesn't show up on a, on a CT scan or on an MRI, it's a huge thing because then the person can go and rest, can do the right uh, measures to limit the effect of that injury. Mm. It's huge. It's huge. And I I wish I could work with those doctors because I could, using my uh, capability of detecting uh, these silent brain injuries would be extremely important for uh, the development of this test. Sure, because you also could have, you know, things like testing for heart attacks, um, I guess even electrolyte levels as well. Uh, I can test uh, uh, irregularities in the energy field, and I can relate which part of the the field is out of uh, balance, and I can tell doctors, test for such and such an organ, and probably a test which shows such and such a thing would uh, give you the right result. For example, years ago I had a doctor friend who uh, called me up and told me, my son is behaving really strangely. Could you please come and see him? And as soon as I started uh, feeling his field, uh, those times I still worked one-on-one. These days I work at a distance, so... But at that time, I, I, uh, as soon as I started test- checking him, I uh, felt that he had a brain injury, and he kept falling asleep, which is uh, typical of brain-injured people. 
the brain tries to shut out the outside world. So uh, I woke him up and I said, did you have a brain injury? And do you have headaches? Because I could see that he had an internal breathing. And he confirmed, and I told his dad, let's get to the hospital right away. And uh, he said, can't we wait till tomorrow morning? And I said, no, we have to go. He has a very slow brain bleed, but he, he has to be at the hospital. So we went to the hospital, and his dad asked me, what test should we do? And I said, tell them that he had a slow uh, brain bleed. And it's still happening. They did the MRI test, and they decided, because it was so slow, that this kid had a, had a brain injury, but the bleeding stopped. And mm-hmm. they wanted to release him from the hospital. Mm-hmm. The father called me up and asked me, what, what should he do? Should he take his son home? And I said, no. Uh, leave him there for another 24 hours because in 24 hours the image would change and they would see that he has uh, slow bleeding still. Next day he comes, uh, the father and mother comes to the hospital and they found the beds empty. And of course you can imagine the scare. They ask what happened and uh, this young man was in surgery. They said by next morning he was unconscious. And a few hours later, he came out of surgery. They released the pressure in his brain, clamped the bleeding, and he was fine. And the doctor, the surgeon came in and told him if he would have uh, taken his son home, the son would have been dead by, by that morning. Wow. Yeah. Another case, I had a, a person in... Uh, uh, of all places in Europe, uh, and uh, she had a brain bleed. She had an MRI, and he, they could see the brain bleed. Uh, the family called me up. I was able to stop the bleeding, and then she had another MRI, and they could confirm that it stopped. Very powerful. I mean, the things that you're sharing with us, and you think about you know this kind of testing uh, that's being talked about. And as I understand, this is something that's in a testing phase at uh, this point with, I guess it's Abbott's uh, laboratory. So yeah, they are working with, uh, with the San Francisco School of Medicine in, uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Manley. Uh, Jeffrey Manley is the one who is heading off this research. It'd be certainly interesting to see exactly how that uh, does pan out. Dr. Stoika has joined us on our program and is sharing information. We touched upon a little bit in her uh, background, uh, having suffered a uh, double concussion. Uh, she has authored a number of books, including a book entitled Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life, How to Recover and Thrive After Concussion. And concussion is a very, very popular topic in a lot of different areas um, these days. Uh, your website, by the way, is healingbraininjury, that's all as one word, dot com, and there's all kinds of information that is available there. I want to touch upon something that when you mention the word napping, you always get a reaction from people. <laughs> I find the reaction to be 
anywhere from people who will immediately start to laugh to the people who start to talk about napping almost like they believe it's a religion. Uh, you know, it's something that's so key and a part of their lives. There's a study out that talks about napping actually appearing to lower the risk of strokes as well as heart attacks. What's your reaction to that? I think that uh, it has a uh, validity because what happens in today's world, we are working very long hours, longer and longer hours. We have all sorts of sources of data. So we have our computer, iPad, iPhone. Uh, is We are bombarded by information, and that is very stressful for the brain. When we are stressed, what happens? We are uh, you, your body uh, would generate the cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Now, if we go and nap, we get into uh, calming our body, reducing this cortisol in our system, which is not very healthy. And uh, one, people who really are power nappers, which some people can sleep ten minutes and they are. Fresh. Some people need to sleep half an hour in order to uh, feel good. But these people you will see uh, uh, before and after, and they are a different person after they nap. And it makes a lot of sense for, uh, for brain health, for general health, because if you have too much cortisol in your system, first of all, you get a big belly. And uh, we know how many people are, are fighting with it. So there is a lot of stress in our lives, and napping uh, helps with uh, calming down our system. So it's taking a break, literally, from this stress that so many of us have in our lives on a daily basis? Yes. And one would think this is such a simple concept. Why is it that some people may think, eh, that can't really have a real serious impact? First of all, we don't have the tradition in this country. In Mediterranean countries, a siesta is something typical. People just, businesses shut down and people go and rest. That was a traditional thing. Uh, but today, people are so driven to be efficient and more efficient and more efficient, this time for napping disappeared. Most of the people would have their lunch in front of their computer while still working, which is very unhealthy. So we are not used to it. And in a world where, where people are appreciated for working 25 hours in a 24-hour day... <laughs> It's uh, uh, just not accepted. It's mm -hmm. considered as shameful, as uh, childish, as a uh, sign of old age, whatever you want to, uh, to say. So we are not used to it, and people don't accept what they are not used to. So this idea of the power nap that some people talk about, where it's, you know, eh, just give me 20 minutes and you know, I'm going to feel completely refreshed. That's a valid thing? 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, if people are ashamed of uh, sleeping, they can get and have a good power walk and it will they would get a not the full benefit, but some of the benefit of snapping. Hmm. And this break from stress is going to reduce your overall levels of stress. Of course. Mm-hmm. You calm your system down. Mm-hmm. And then the key thing is not just calming your system down, but trying to keep it that way. Yeah, that's, uh, then you get into meditation, into stretching, like yoga, uh, tai chi, those all all the systems which are slow movement, not the yoga which is in hot environment and done fast. The traditional yoga, it's really helpful for reducing the amount of stress, and it's known. People reduce their blood pressure by meditating and doing yoga. It's a known side effect. Very interesting discussion. Dr. Susanna Stoika, our guest, thank you very much for uh, joining us, sharing the information you have. Uh, As I mentioned, you've authored a number of books, including Heal Your Brain, Reclaim Your Life, How to Recover and Thrive After Concussion. The uh, website that I mentioned earlier for you at healingbraininjury, that's all as one word, dot com. Thank you for joining us and providing this information. Certainly, we wish you the best of health. Thank you so much for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share my information, which is a a passion of mine. And Liguria is going to continue the fun after 7 this morning. Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program along at 8 o'clock. We will see you bright and early at 6 next Sunday morning. You're on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.